Coming up on this week's show, Andy Gallo joins us to talk about the Harrison Campus series. This is the Big Gay Fiction Podcast, the show for avid readers and passionate fans of gay romance fiction. Each week, we bring you exclusive author interviews, book recommendations, and explore the latest in gay pop culture. Welcome to episode 256 of the Big Gay Fiction Podcast. I'm Will Knaus, and with me, as always, is my co-host and husband, the delightful, the adorable, Mr. Jeff Adams. Oh, that was so sweet. Hi, everybody. This episode of the podcast is brought to you in part by our remarkable community on Patreon. We'll have more information on how you can join the community at the end of the show, along with a sneak peek of what we're going to have coming up for you next week. Hello, Rainbow Romance readers. Welcome back to the show. Let's talk a few minutes about some stuff that's going on around here. I am on the Best Book Ever podcast this week in an episode that drops the same day this show does on August 31st. Best Book Ever is a brand new podcast that's hosted by author Julie Strauss, and she talks to people about one of their very favorite books. She cuts across all the genres in this podcast, folks. It's really interesting to see what she ends up reading as she prepares for the show. It's it's a wonderful broad spectrum. And I was really excited not only to get to come to the show and talk to her, but to talk about one of the books that sits on my all-time favorites list. And this was such a hard choice because, as you know from listening to me on this show over the years, I have so many things that sit on my favorite, favorite shelf. But I picked Serena Bowen's The Understatement of the Year, which, if you've listened to this show over the years, I talk about this book every now and then as being one of those things that I like a whole bunch. But we've never really done any deep dive on it because... It predates the show. So I'm really excited to talk to Juliet about it. We had a great conversation, and I look forward to everybody getting to hear that this week. Definitely looking forward to that. I have an announcement. Da, 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 da. <laughs> He's so silly. I am very happy to announce that the book club pick for the month of September is going to be Z.A. Maxfield's St. Nachos. I am so very happy we picked this book. This is another one of those books that sits on my all-time favorites list. And that we are going into the Wayback Machine, essentially, to talk about this book. If you follow Zam, you know she's been spiffing up the St. Nacho series with some new covers. And even more importantly, she's putting out some new stories in the St. Nacho's universe, which just has me super excited. So to go back and revisit the first book has made me so very happy this past couple of weeks. Members of our Patreon community will get exclusive early access to the episode this week. So keep an eye out for that. And the St. Nachos Book Club episode will release to everyone in the regular podcast feed on Tuesday, September 29th. So if you've never read St. Nachos, it's the perfect opportunity for you to pick up this one. And if you have read it, I highly recommend a reread. I, I thoroughly enjoyed going back to this seaside California town, and I suspect you will too. Something that Jeff and I have been doing this past summer, considering the state of the world, we have been binge-watching some feel-good television Shows that, if I look back at them, all have uh, something in common, a remarkable amount of kindness. At the start of summer, Jeff and I took the plunge and we started watching Parks and Recreation. We were very happy to finally jump on that particular bandwagon and enjoyed every single moment of it. We bought the Blu-ray set of The Good Place and thoroughly enjoyed the rewatch of that series. And we are happy to say we just finished watching all six seasons of Schitt's Creek. This critically acclaimed comedy has been sort of bubbling in the back of my consciousness as something that we should probably take a look at. We've finally taken the plunge. And of course, I'm delighted and very glad that we did. 
I'm really sad that it's over. In some ways, I wish we'd slowed down, but I'm also happy that we've now seen all of it. As you said, it's been bubbling in the back of my mind, too. It's like, we should probably watch that. And then we finally got around to it. And I love the hilarity of it all and just the outright bonkersness of some of what goes on there. But as you noted, it is all wrapped up in so much heart and so much kindness. And I have to say that the romance between Patrick and David was probably one of the swooniest things I have ever seen on TV. <laughs> just the the simple way that it started and Patrick singing the best to David to get him to go out with him. It was so amazing, the whole thing. And it capped off with that wonderful wedding. I apologize to anybody that I've just spoiled the entire series for, <laughs> but you should just go watch it anyway because it's just wonderful. Everybody on that show was so good. It was such a perfect ensemble. Wonderful ensemble indeed. Wonderfully and perfectly Canadian. So give Shit's Creek a try if you haven't already. Seasons one through five are streaming right now on Netflix. Season six, the final season, should be arriving on Netflix soon. And if you haven't seen it, I'll put a link in the show notes to it. We stumbled across a, a piece that the Shit's Creek cast did for a YouTube uh, streaming thing that happened to honor the class of 2020. So it actually was filmed after the show had completed its run in April. The entire cast is back, along with a very special guest star. So if you haven't seen that, look in the show notes for it, because it was an absolute delight and a nice little button on the Shit's Creek experience. I'm in the mood to talk about books. Yay, let's do it. Okay. I read something this past week that was so deeply romantic and satisfying. It made me very, very happy. It was exactly what I needed, which I know is something that I've been saying a lot, especially about the books that I've talked about this past summer. But considering what the world has been going through, finding that perfect romantic read is something special, and I think it needs to be celebrated. So I'm going to try to, in just a few minutes, encapsulate all my thoughts and all my love of Andre by J.C. Ellis. This is the wonderful story of our main character, whose name is, guess what? It's Andre. He's a hardworking guy who decides to finally take a little time off, and he goes out to a club where he meets Marcus, and they immediately click. They talk, and they do a little bit of dancing. And even from the get-go, you get a really concrete sense of the connection and the chemistry that these two have marcus like leans into him and whispers all the dirty filthy things that he's going to do to andre and andre goes um that sounds great thanks bye and he leaves <laughs> but thankfully he's waiting outside the club and he asks marcus did you really mean what you said and he says oh yeah so they go back to andre's place and they hook up it is wild it is crazy it is hot and it is amazing now, this is a traditional romance setup that Slade James from GayRomance.show likes to call Meet Sleazy. Instead of a, a Meet Cute, it's where our two characters hook up like right away. And if you love this particular romantic convention as much as I do, you know exactly what's going to happen next. Andre runs a boutique financial services company. It's essentially just him, but he has the opportunity to pitch a really large influential client. And as part of that pitch, he's going to take on an intern from a large financial firm, one that he previously worked for. Guess who that intern is? Yeah, you guessed right. It's Marcus. And when Marcus first sees Andre, he's kind of taken aback, obviously, but he's also a little pissed off. He's like, what's this about? Are you playing me? Of course, Andre is not playing him. And each of them, for their own separate reasons, really need this 
particular pitch to go very, very well. So they decide to set aside their previous experiences and uh, work together. And in that first week, they get to know and understand each other a little bit better. And there's a lot of hard work and respect going on. But just when things are going great comes the word that their three-week timeline has been cut down to two. And Andre has promised his parents that he's going to fly down to Florida for the weekend for his dad's 70th birthday. So the plan is Marcus is going to accompany him and work on the proposal during their downtime. When they arrive, a busybody friend of the family sees them arrive together and knows that they're sleeping in a single room with only one bed, creating the gossip that they are more than just business acquaintances. So there's that that they have to deal with, along with the issues that Andre has with his brother. Andre's younger brother is a bit of a dick. (laughs) (laughs) He's kind of always teasing him and needling him about a wide range of things. And before they leave, Andre admits to Marcus that he's not exactly looking forward to spending time with his family, which isn't something he's ever actually said out loud to anyone, presumably because they're family and you're just supposed to put up with that crap. But Marcus immediately says, no, I get it. Microaggressions like that, that sucks. And that's just one of the many things that show how these two characters kind of get one another. There's this low simmering sexual tension that they have but there's an emotional awareness as well and marcus manages to deal with andre's brother in a low-key respectful way so as not to disrupt the festivities it's really wonderful once they get back to dc they make the big presentation and they win the contract which means that this portion of marcus's internship is over after the situation in florida andre and marcus have essentially decided to come out with their relationship and are trying to make things work while Marcus is still going to school while also working on this large contract. Things seem to be going along well until Marcus's parents show up on Andre's front doorstep. Marcus has expressed to his friend that he may not be interested in a career in finance anymore. So his parents have shown up to find out what's going on. And if Andre is indeed some sort of bad influence that is steering Marcus away from the path that he's so carefully chosen. The meeting doesn't go particularly well because Andre assures Marcus's parents that it's certainly not him that put this idea in Marcus's head. And this understandably causes a rift in their relationship. After spending some time apart, they realize that they cannot and don't want to live without one another. And in their meeting with their conservative client, they decide to come clean about their relationship which incidentally those people don't have a problem with. And they realize that working together and being together and loving one another is what each of them truly wants. And then it was meant to be all along. So that in a nutshell is my sort of cursory overview of the romantic journey of Andre and Marcus. Please understand that that just barely touches the surface of what these guys experience there's so much good stuff i could spend the next hour talking about all of the things that i loved about this particular book not the least of which is is the cast of characters that support our two heroes there's andre's best friend who also works as his office manager she serves as a sounding board about all of his business concerns and about his relationship with Marcus. She's the perfect best friend. She's loving and supportive, but she's also going to call Andre on his shit, which is kind of the person that we all need in our life. The addition of Andre's parents and Marcus's parents are really, really wonderful. Those characters are really well drawn. And I have to mention Phil. 
He is Andre's ex, and he is the genuine villain of the story. He works at the large financial firm that Marcus is interning for, and at every turn, Phil tries to drive a wedge between the two of them and sabotage them winning the big contract, but everything he does just seems to bring our heroes closer together. And at the end, there is a truly, truly delicious scene where he gets his comeuppance. It is so deeply satisfying. One other thing I think the author did really, really well is that both of our characters, Andre and Marcus, are dealing with different issues and ideas about being gay, what it means to be gay and masculine, which is something that I haven't seen a whole lot of books explore. But what the author manages to do is not treat it in like a very special episode kind of way. It's not like overly angsty, but it paints Andre and Marcus as very real and complex, and it's something that they can both work on together as a couple. So I really enjoyed Andre by J.C. Ellis. It came out at the beginning of the summer, and if you haven't had a chance to read it yet, I highly recommend it. It sounds awesome. I'm a little jealous that you picked that up. This <laughs> this book has been sitting on our Kindle in the cloud for a while now since it came out, and it's been kind of a back and forth, like, who was going to go grab it first? I'm glad you got it, though, because... you. As you mentioned, your reading has not always been successful this summer, so I'm really glad you found one that just took you away. Yeah, I mean, if you like really sexy office romances, this is the book for you. Check out Andre. Yeah, that one certainly pushed a lot of your favorite trope buttons for <laughs> sure. So I made my very first trip to Spruce, Texas this week as I read Wrangled, which is the fourth book in Daryl Banner's Spruce, Texas romance series. Uh, it's also my very first Daryl Banner book. You've read one of his holiday romances on the show before, but I finally took my plunge here. I loved this enemies to lovers story between a guy who got out of Spruce and at the same time managed to miss all the coming out that happened in the, in the other books and the guy who tormented him in high school. To make it all the more interesting, this is actually set at the 10-year reunion when Lance comes home and sees not only how the town has changed, but Chad Landry as well. Lance has a bit of a reputation in town as the guy who, in fact, did leave to make it in fashion. And he has done a few things to get noticed, and he's on the verge of even more in his career. He finds out quickly upon his return that people do remember him. The woman who checks him in at the hotel, the guys he runs into at the diner when he stops for dinner upon getting back. His guard is up the whole time. He's kind of braced for the insults and the barbs that he used to get in high school, but he ends up getting none of it. People are interested in what he's up to, how he's doing in L.A., how long is he staying in town. Uh, and that's even true among some of those who had harassed him in the past. Now, he ends up invited to a pre-reunion event at the high school, and after some hesitation, he decides to actually show up. He's not there very long when Chad actually arrives, and here, at, is at the same time, it's the boy that he's always had this crush on, but it's also the one who has bullied him the most. And Lance doesn't really know what to do when he lays eyes on Chad. It's a toss-up between just admiring this hunk of a cowboy who's walked in and also being worried for what might come next now that they're both in the same room. Chad surprises Lance. It turns out that Chad actually hoped that Lance would return because he wants to talk. Not only does he want to apologize for what he did in high school and what he actually allowed to happen at the same time, he also wants to come out and express his feelings for Lance. As others in Spruce came out and got married, which is something that you see in the previous books in this series, 
Chad paid attention to the feelings he'd buried, realizing that he too was gay. Now, I love how Daryl brought Chad and Lance together. It's far from easy, as they both have a ton of baggage around their high school years, not the least of which is the bullying in the past. Lance isn't sure he can accept the apology, or if he does, that he could even allow himself to be with Chad. Chad, meanwhile, does everything he can to make the case that he isn't that guy anymore, and for Lance to give him a try. There are several super cute and super hot moments in this book, including Chad getting Lance into a wrestling singlet during the reunion dinner and actually doing a little bit of wrestling, which leads to some really hot locker room action. Uh, Daryl really knows how to write some sizzling hot sexy times. I really enjoyed that a lot. And there's also some really cute couple moments at the after party from the reunion. Lance decides to stay in Texas even longer than he had planned to see what he and Chad could be like, and it's some domestic bliss, even as Lance learns a whole bunch of stuff about the current Chad, what it's like on the ranch that he runs, meeting the ranch hands that work with Chad, and even meeting Chad's ex-wife, which is really hysterical. Now, fame and fashion design soon call Lance back to Los Angeles, and I really enjoy how Daryl navigated sending Lance back and how that changed the relationship with Chad. They were initially trying to go long distance, but then Lance got more and more caught up in work. The ultimate grand gesture that Chad does was so soon-worthy, and the expected HEA was an absolute delight. Now, this book's not always easy to read with some of the bullying themes, including a bit of bullying that Lance unleashes on a fellow classmate that he felt could have done better by Lance when he was in high school. It's realistic, but it's uncomfortable at the same time, much like it was for the people who were around Lance when he actually did it. I need to go back to Spruce and find out about the other people that I met in Wrangled because I could tell there are some really excellent characters to be visited there. So I think I will be trying to do that soon. Although, of course, Wrangle can totally be read as a standalone. I had no problem with that. And I, I know it also will not be my last book by Daryl because I really like the way that he tells a romance. Now, in the time since I read Wrangled, the audiobook has been released and is available along with the rest of the Spruce Texas series through Libro.fm, where you can purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookseller. All you need is a smartphone and the free Libro.fm app. Listeners of Big Gay Fiction Podcast can get a two-month audiobook membership for the price of one month, and you can check out the details for that at biggayfictionpodcast.com slash Libro.fm. That's L-I-B-R-O-F-M for all of the details. I really love listening to books on the Libro app. Jeff will probably tell you I'm not the most tech-savvy person in the world, but Libro makes listening really easy and really enjoyable. So if audiobooks are, in fact, your thing, definitely check out Libro.fm. So shifting gears a little bit, back in July, I took a critical lens workshop, which is taught by author and RWA president-elect Laquette. Now, this class is designed to help writers who create characters outside of their personal, generational, or cultural experience, because even with that, because even with the best of intentions, it's easy to create problematic or harmful content when you're unaware of what you don't know. The class has a focus on using literary frameworks to gain insight into alternative perspectives that can help identify and eliminate problematic and harmful content before publication. The class also provides guidance on how reviewers and readers can apply the same literary frameworks when they're reading outside of what they know. I recently talked with Laquette 
about the class for the Big Gay Author podcast. And we wanted to share a few minutes of our conversation here, particularly how it relates to readers. It's not something that's just for authors. It's also because authors are readers too. Many of us start writing because of what we read. When you're reading, again, you're taking in all of this information and you're processing it. Well, if you don't have a frame of reference for it, right? If you don't, if you don't know any marginalized people in your real day-to-day personal life, then you don't really have a frame of reference for what that community is, is like. And then to want to, to read it, then it seems strange. They seem foreign and you question whether, you know, this is something that would really be. And the truth of the matter is you don't, you don't come to mainstream romance thinking those things. You don't question those things because it's automatically assumed that by the whiteness of the characters, the straightness of the characters, as well as the author, that there is a level of competence expected, right? But when marginalized people write, there's this scrutiny that's applied to their work through readers because they're looking for things that are, will tell them that this is not true, right? Because in their heads, they know these people to be one thing, but when the author actually from that community is writing it and they're reading it, it doesn't, it, it doesn't connect with what they think they know about people's communities and experiences. And so it can be very jarring for a reader to pick up a book. I once had someone tell me, and the person meant it as a compliment, but it really wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> It's like, oh my God, Laquetta, I read your book. And like, I loved it. Like, it didn't seem like a black book. <laughs> I was oh. like, wow. Wow, yeah. <laughs> what does a black book seem like to you? <laughs> and, and people don't recognize that the thread that connects us all is our humanity, right? And, and so what we're really fighting against is not necessarily you know, people's beliefs about this or that, what we're fighting about is people acknowledging our humanity and, and validating our humanity. And when you are from the dominant culture, your, your existence is validated in every part of life, right? You turn on the TV, what do you see? White straight people, right? You read a book, what do you see? White straight people and enabled people. You see these, these things constantly in our, in every medium, right? In literature, in film, in television, in the, in the theater. Like you see this over and over and over again. And we're repeatedly told this is the standard. If you can't be this, then you are somehow substandard or abnormal. And we don't realize that, like we, we really don't recognize that, but if you kind of look at things in, in life, I forget the name of the researcher, but there was a researcher who took small children, gave children a white doll and a black doll, and they all chose, black children included, 
they all chose to play with the white doll because the white doll was what they had seen, they'd been told was beautiful and pretty. And so that's what they believed beautiful and pretty looked like, white. And so if we keep creating these images of love only you know, looking a certain way with people who look a certain way or who identify a certain way or who are able to do things a certain way or who think a certain way, when we, when we do that, what we're saying is everything else is abnormal and you somehow are broken because you can't meet this standard. You somehow are not as valuable because you can't meet this standard. And you have to, we have to get past that in order to, like I read a book and I don't look at the characters and go, okay, this is gonna be a good book because white people are on the, the front of the cover. <laughs> like I don't, I read the blurb. Well, I'm actually kind of like, I'm really in love with covers. So if you give me a good cover with, you know, people on it that look like they are about to rip each other's clothes off, I'm good with that. I don't really care who they are. Right? <laughs> I'm good with that, right? But if you can convince me that these two, three, or however many people involved should be together and you create a really good story, I'm buying in. I don't like, and that's a, another part of the issue that marginalized people are taught to uphold the dominant standard, right? We're taught to understand it. We're taught to engage with it, but the opposite is not true. So I've read white romance for years, right? But there are still people, there are still white people in 2020 who have never read a book by an author who is a person of color. There are heterosexual people who have never picked up a book that features LGBTQ plus couplings. Still, 2020, and we still have people who have never read outside of what they consider the normal. Mm -hmm. And that is, it's telling. It's telling why this industry is so slow to become more diverse and inclusive because people get to self-segregate and they get to continue to read the same things they want to read. And they, you know, like, they chalk it up to, I like what I like, right? Which, you know, to some degree, we all have a thing we like, but when you like that to the exclusion of everything else, you have to ask why. Yeah. Like, why is the question that will always yield the most answers? Yeah, to me, it should be, I like second chance romances. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe that, and that can include everybody. Exactly. Like to, to narrow it down to the people that are in them. Eh. It's weird. Like when you say it out loud, it's weird. Yeah. <laughs> when you say it out loud, it's very weird. And, and I think that that's one of the reasons why I teach this course is I want for people to be able to say those things out loud so they can hear themselves and or read rather their their own words and realize wow i put that out there in like i i wrote those sentences and i don't know if i actually meant that but i'm looking at what i said and that's kind of you know out there like maybe i might want to rethink that like why do i think that and it doesn't make you a bad person and that's one of the things i try to get people to understand day one on class this is a safe space we're not going to um, chastise you. We're not here to make you feel unwelcome or to badger you. 
but it's not going to be easy. I'm not going right. to lie right. to you, right? I'm going to tell you the truth. I'm going to give you the opportunity to say what you have to say, but then I'm going to tell you why that's problematic. And that's the only way you will learn. And it's a process, right? Like my class is the start. It's not the end of it. It's the start, the beginning of the journey. It's the, the moment you start asking questions about, you know, you, you're thinking about things beyond the superficial. And like someone raised the point of, in a Joanna Shoot book, the, the individual didn't care for how the white man has to come in and save the heroine when a black man was standing there and she couldn't understand why Joanna chose to do that. Now I hadn't read the book, but instantly I knew why Joanna chose to do that because we're talking about the Gilded Age. Slavery hadn't been, you know, over a hundred years at that point. You know, a black man putting his hands on a, a white person for any reason could have ended in his death. But that never even crossed that, that reader's mind. It never occurred to her that there's a real reason why this man would not interfere when he saw a white man attacking a white woman. Like, why wouldn't he? He should jump in. Why did he have to wait for the hero? Because in reality, he would have, regardless of whether he was right or wrong, regardless of him saving this woman, regardless of her standing up for him and saying he did it because, you know, this man was going to kill me, he still would have been either arrested or killed because mm -hmm. of it. But that is the luxury that people from dominant culture have. They don't have to think about these things because the world's built for them. And so when you read, you have to be conscious of these things. You have to ask, why? Why is this happening? Why did this author choose to do this? What can I, you know, the, the point of reading is not just to read to consume, but to read to question, the, to read to kind of understand what's going on because you're not just trying to read you're also trying to comprehend and i think people in the enjoyment of reading romance they kind of forget to still be thinking critically as they're re thinking about what they're reading as they're reading so with everything that's going on in the world right now i think these are the kinds of conversations that we need to be having in the gay romance community I'm going to be real with you all for just half a second. We're really good at talking the talk of diversity and inclusion. But honestly, just take one look at the top 100 on Amazon right now, and you will know that we do not walk the walk. Representation is really important, and we need to do better when it comes to supporting authors of color and diverse stories with BIPOC characters. And I think having the conversation like we just had with Laquette is a good first step, but it's a single step on a long road. This is certainly something that I've been thinking about a lot. And while I certainly don't have all of the answers when it comes to diversity and inclusion within this genre, it's certainly something that I feel very strongly about and something I want to work on moving forward. I definitely want to thank Laquette for spending so much time talking with me on this topic. If you'd like to hear the entire discussion, which we certainly encourage you to do, uh, you can find it in Big Gay Author Podcast episodes 56 and 57. I'll have links for that in the show notes so that you can easily find that. And of course, it'll be in your podcatchers as well. And of course, also on the show notes page, you'll find links to all the books and everything else that we've talked about on this show at biggayfictionpodcast.com. Good morning, everyone. This is Jeffy Kennedy, and I'm here with my first cup of coffee, 
every morning on Mondays, Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays. I'm an award-winning author of fantasy and romantic fantasy, and I chat with you over my first cup of coffee of the day, discussing what it's like to be a career author. I honestly share the ups and downs of this business, including my daily challenges and triumphs in getting my novels written. I give insights into the business side of being a writer, including agents, publishing, both traditional and self-publishing paths, and how much money I really make. I also give writing advice and reflect on leading a fulfilling and creative life. It's low-key, conversational. The cats sometimes put in appearances. I hope you all will join me there. Sit down and have a cup of coffee with me. Hey there, this is Will. Did you know that not only do Jeff and I love to talk about gay romance every week here on the show, but we've also written one together too? It's true. The Hockey Player's Heart is the story of an NHL all-star who returns to his hometown and unexpectedly runs into the guy who he was head over heels for in high school. He didn't have the guts back then to tell him how he felt. Now he isn't going to let this opportunity slip through his fingers. But how can it ever work between a pro hockey player and a sweet small town guy afraid to give love a chance? The Hockey Player's Heart is available on Amazon in both print and ebook formats and can be read for free with your Kindle Unlimited subscription. This story is very special to us. It's filled with small town charm and two nice guy heroes with hearts of gold working hard to find their happily ever after. We hope that you'll give it a try. And now, back to the podcast. So I recently got to talk to Andy Gallo about the Harrison Campus series that he co-writes with Anita Sunday. Unfortunately, Anita could not join us. Life kind of intervened as we were getting ready to uh, have this interview. I still got to talk to Andy about this series that they created together after they met online almost 10 years ago now. So it's really interesting to hear how this series evolved. Andy, welcome to the podcast. It is so good to have you here. Thanks, Jeff. So we are talking about the Harrison Campus series. You and Anita Sunday released the third book in that series earlier this month. And before we dig into Better Be True, tell us what this series is about for those who may not be familiar. So we started this, I mean, believe it or not, the story of this thing, this started about nine years ago. We started with the first book and it was sort of like a short story we wrote for the gay author's website. And then, I mean, you look at the original and you look at what the finished product was and they're just light years apart but so we started it we shelved it we both went on to different places in our careers like i wrote fantasy she went delved into straight mm so then we came back to him we said look well it's a one-off what can we do and so we decided that we were going to expand it into the entire campus series so the whole series revolves around this fictional campus named after president benjamin harrison and it was just like you know trying to like come up with a backstory so the founder of the university was friends with the president so the the connection between all three books is that Harrison campus is where they all one at least one of all the main characters went to school there. And so then it's just different couples through their, you know, different things that happened to them to get to their happy ever afters. And what's going on in better be true. So that one was sort of, that's the least connected to the campus. We started on campus and they moved to Philadelphia, which is kind of where I was, I grew up. And since the university is in, Pennsylvania, supposedly, it was just a nice, easy segue into there. But and that's a uh, two two students both have change of plans and end up in Philadelphia. They both want to they they can't afford to live on their own, so they end up through like you know university hosting board message board. They get together and they agree to room together, and it turns out that the 
double bed, the single beds that were put together with a bed baffle that could be two single beds had been replaced by a king size bed unbeknownst to them until they get there. And so then as this happens and as it goes along, Luke runs into his ex and Nico sort of steps up and pretends the first time to be his boyfriend. And then when Nico needs the favor, Luke steps up. And and so it's just like this one after another until they finally realize they're not really faking so much anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Fake boyfriend is such a favorite trope. (laughs) I know. You know, I didn't know that when I wrote it, but it was just kind of an interesting, you know, when we wrote it together, we just said, oh, what about this, you know? And then, uh, you know, combining that with Anita, because I know Anita loves the slow burn. You know, you put a slow burn and a fake boyfriend together and it's kind of gold. <laughs> right. It does. It does. That is the trope. That trope definitely works for the slow burn. And it did. That, that, and, that in book two was like a rivals, enemies to lovers kind of thing. It's another one of those that mm. you kind of take a while to figure out that, okay, you're not so bad after all. <laughs> right. Tracking back the nine years when you wrote the original, how did the idea come up? So when we, when they were doing this contest, it was like, what's, I mean, this is like seriously like the dark ages of MM romance. Right. And so what we did was we kind of like thought about what we wanted to write. And we both said, you know, what will sell best a contemporary, like a, that sort of thing. And so we tried to come up with a story and, and, you know, we started with, fraternity which was jackson murphy was in the fraternity and then the boyfriend was not i will say this i love the process with anita she's so brilliant she really is just her thought process is just so brilliant working with her and so we threw out some ideas and she kind of ran with this and then i pushed that way and then she ran with this idea and then i just kind of supplied some of the u.s college information and we kind of came together and you mentioned that it's light and day where the first book ended up from the first collaboration to to making the first story to where it is now. What was the evolution like to continue to work on it and spruce it up to become like the foundation of a series? So we put it aside for probably about five years. We revisited it back in like 2015, 2016, shelled it again. It, it, It evolved because, you know, like we learned so much. That's not, you know, these are the things you needed in a romance. I mean, Jeff, when we wrote that, this whole trope stuff, the whole dual point of view character was not a big thing. And so this was, this is of the three books, this is more literary than romancy, if I can use that word. Mm-hmm. You know, we had the, the foster brother, best friends, romances kind of woven into that, the best female friend and her new romance. It was very literary in the sense that it had all the different like subplots and everything got tied up and there were no loose ends. And then there was the romance, which was the strong point, but it didn't follow any of the tried and true tropes of, Mm -hmm. you know, it, it, we didn't really try and hit the tropes when we wrote it. We tried to hit the story, which obviously if we were rewriting it today, it would look more like books two and three, but it just evolved. I mean, just more sex, less, you know, less, less non-romantic elements. So we added more romantic elements, took out some of the non, Mm -hmm. more dates, fewer interactions between the brothers. More romance forward, I guess. Right. We tried to like, we learned enough that romance needed more, you know, like, was it somebody told me every scene should promote the romance Mm -hmm. in a romance. Every scene should forward the romance. And we had a number of scenes that didn't really forward the romance in the original version because we didn't really know that we were writing in 2010, 2011. (laughs) How did it feel to create a series from what started out as essentially this contest entry? 
You know, that was the, that was a, that was one of the fun parts of it because, you know, we tried to look and say, okay, well, who else's story could we write? And so, really, when we wrote book one, we didn't have an idea to put a second person in. So when we went back and we wrote it, we figured out, okay, which of these other characters can we start the next series on? And so that's where Darren came from. And just watching it, it was what I like about it was is that we were able to just build on the on the you know the, the universe that we'd started. So it was a lot easier doing two and three because in our heads we already knew what the campus looked like and who was this and where the background from the campus come from and who had started it. all the little pieces that we had like our little bible so it was an interesting it was almost like writing my fantasy series because you know you had like instead of having a whole new uni- world we just had this whole little universe that we had created and then we had backstory already how did you and Anita come together for collaboration? Because obviously this goes back years now since, right. you know, round one of this happened so long ago. So we met on the Gay Authors website and we just sort of got to be, got to know each other. We were like friends on that. And then the issue, the the contest came up and she approached me and said, you know, I'd really like to enter this and I want to enter it with you. I'm like, okay. And then her husband got transferred from Germany to Pittsburgh. And I live north of just north of D.C. in the suburbs, so it's like a four and a half hour drive. So she used to come down, and we would we worked on it together in my house. They were in a hotel at one point, and yeah, you know, we just it was that's how it came together. We were able to sit down and actually talk, which I think probably cemented our friendship better. You know, just actually having spent that time together, seeing her husband, her kid, her oldest was like three at the time, and her youngest it wasn't born then. We started on the online and then we actually met in person. And then from there, we've just stayed in touch ever since. Sort of like if you wrote with somebody who lived across town, you probably wouldn't sit with them every day and write it. And that was sort of it. She was in Pittsburgh and I was in Maryland. And and so we wrote them on, but we actually got together and you know sat down and worked it out together. And just, it was just, even if it was just the last bits, like the edits and things, you know, the final drafts and stuff, we were able to sit down together and just kind of, you know, you can see someone's facial expressions when you say something. They're like, <laughs> you know, you're like, okay, right. I just killed your baby. What's wrong? You know, so it was easier to figure out, like, you know, her emotions and my her to figure out mine, like where I was coming from on stuff. How has the collaboration evolved over the years? I would say almost very little in some ways. Mm. I mean, we do the same thing now that we did then. We start with an outline and we start with an idea. I think the only thing that's, one of the things that's changed is we have better technology. I mean, back then we were doing it on like a Google Hangout chat <laughs> and, you know, trying to scroll through and find out, what did you say? And you're going, you know, and trying to go find it. It was hard. Whereas now, we, you know, we just like cut and paste into a Word doc and now we can do it like on, you know, we can do Skype, we can talk and type it out and we can share screens. And so that sort of piece has changed. But we still do, we still sit down and we map out our, we have like our broad story first and then we map out scenes and then we map out individuals in the scenes, what's going on. And then we put it together. And I think the one thing that has changed is that I typically write the rough drafts now and she takes it from there. Whereas in the past we would swap off chapters. And what we found was that it was easier for to get the rough draft out and then she would change it up and then we would work. And then, you know, then once we had that version, the two of us would go back and kind of smooth out the pieces that like, I don't like this part, but I like this. And she'd be like, I don't like this part, but I like this. And so we'd smooth out where we needed to be. So that was like the other change that's taken place is that we've sort of let me do the rough draft and then her take her stab at it. And then we come together and try and do it individually chapters one by one. 
How much discovery writing is there in in that for you? I mean, is there a lot of is there space to kind of make stuff up as you go, or is it plotted so tightly that it becomes more like filling in the meat of things? Well, I mean, no and yes, because on the one hand, there is no. I mean, we have like the outline that we're doing right, and so that is sort of yeah, that's sort of tight in the sense that it's what we agreed to. But, you know, as I'm writing stuff, things just don't work. Like, you know, we think about it. Oh, it's a great idea. And we're like, okay, let's go. And you start to write it and you're like, man, this is boring. Or man, this doesn't work. Or man, this is a problem. And so then we go, so I, I, I can, at that point, typically what I will do, because we have such, we have the, we have the time zone difference. Sometimes what I'll do is I will write something and send it off and then say, what do you think of this? So. And that and then, helps because she is in Europe. So by the time you wake up, she's probably already read it. And that could be very handy. Yeah. And it does because sometimes it lets, and, and you know, and when she comes back with her comments, I can look at them and say like, okay, I see that or no. And here's why. And so it, it, it's really been great working with her because she doesn't have like this. I mean, she's definitely light years above me in this writing field. But she doesn't have this ego, and so she listens. And then, of course, usually I end up agreeing with her. But um, <laughs> she doesn't have this "I'm right, you're wrong" attitude. She like sometimes she just has to let me painfully figure it out, and she lets me come along until I get to where she needs me to be. So it's it's really been great working with her that way. Is this your first collaboration? Well, yes, it was the first one I ever. I mean, she and I were the first one, and I have I haven't really published anything with anybody else yet. Although there's a couple in the works. That's cool. That's cool. Anything you'd like to share to folks I, to get them interested in? Or considering that uh, my co-author already put it on her on her newsletter, yeah, B. A. Tortuga and I are writing a western series together. Oh, fantastic! You know, I was never a fan of westerns until I started reading hers, and now I'm just like, and then I was like such a fan of hers, and I approached her and I said, "Hey, would you be interested in this?" And she said yes, and I was just like running around the house, going, "Oh my god! Oh my god! Oh my god! She's gonna do it!" <laughs> my husband thought I was crazy. So what's it been like for you pivoting to Westerns from, you know, contemporary college campus? You know, I, it, it's interesting because she, she has to kind of bring me along into that genre somewhat, right? And so like not both, you know, typically in a lot of these Westerns, one character is not as Western as the other. And so the hard part with writing that collaboration is, she writes very differently than Nita and I wrote. So she likes it. I have my character. You have your character. I write my chapter. You look at it. You write your chapter. And so we have like a very, we don't have near the same like outlining that we do. So it's a different, I mean, it works, but it's different. <laughs> That's exciting. Looking forward to, to getting to read that when they come out for sure. With Harris and Campus, do you foresee more books in this universe? Yes. So we're actually working on book four, which has had a number of stops and starts because I started it. I didn't like it. I'd send it back to her and then we'd try and work it out. And then I'd try again and I'm like, I still didn't like it. And so finally we sat down, I guess it was in the last like two weeks and we had like two or three Skype chats that lasted over an hour where we kind of hammered out like, and it, it, the only thing that's the same is that the same, we're using the same main character from book four, three that we'd always planned to write. And so other than that, the whole story is different. So it's, you know, it's one of these older brother, boyfriend kind of things, you know, best friend, brother. Mm -hmm. 
sort of thing. And so that's sort of, it's sort of like a different one. And, and I had trouble with that. I really did. I had trouble initially with it because it's just sort of like the whole, well, it's written. You can't date your best friend's brother. It's like, it's written where? (laughs) And, you know, and so, so, you know, that was sort of like, that was initially the, the impediment. And it was like, this really doesn't work. And she's like, no, it doesn't. So we came up with a better, you know, better scenario for better foul line for the story. And then there's another one after that, which we haven't quite decided whether we're going to make that book five or make it sort of like a spinoff series, because that one sort of follows a character from book three, but it follows him in Philadelphia. So we're not sure what we're going to do with that yet. Spin off and expand the universe. <laughs> Correct. Yes. And I mean, some of the same characters, but yeah, it would be a different link for the books. It would no longer be the Harrison campus because no one's going to be on the campus anymore. <laughs> What got you started writing and into storytelling? So honestly, I needed a I needed a hobby. I remember it so clearly. We were in my, our old house in Virginia, and I'm not a TV fan. Like I'm just not. I don't enjoy it. I, I, have, I have too short of an attention span. So like, I will watch it and I'll be get up and then I'll come back and be I'm missing. I'll be missing things. So my husband's like, "Look, you need a hobby." <laughs> like you need a hobby and so it's like well, I've always wanted to write I mean I started writing in college I gave it up when I went to law school I gave it up when I was you know starting to prosecute and it was just like if you know anything about being a prosecutor it's intense at times at least until you really get to the point where you're old you know old hand at it and, and so this was sort of a way for me to decompress to you know something to do while he watched television because that was his way of decompressing at times but yeah, if we're not going out, I would just he would he had his shows that he watched, and I was just not interested. And so that was how and I actually started with the fantasy series, and I would just write it, print it out at work, give it to him to read. And I don't. I remember we moved here to Maryland, right near the University of Maryland, and for whatever the reason, the story came to head about like college students. I'm like, all right, what the hell? They're all like right here. So I wrote that. I started writing contemporary, and that's the stuff I posted on gay authors that I met Anita through. I like how you came to it a little later because so many people we talk to, you know, they've always written. And I like how you kind of came back to it starting as the decompression for things. That's a cool story. Um, Except for the fact that now once you get when you get knee deep into it, it sort of adds to the stress level when it shouldn't, you know, <laughs> once you get to that level. Especially if you're on deadlines and people are waiting for your pages. <laughs> it, it takes the hobbyist out of it for sure. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, it does. You started in fantasy, so now are you working, are you still doing fantasy alongside the romance and the westerns and things? I, I write under Andrew Q. Gordon under my fantasy. And when I finished that series, I kind of was like, <sighs> I didn't think that there was another book, right? Because it's sort of like Lord of the Rings. Once you kill Sauron, what's next, right? I mean, who's you going to re you going to create another bad guy just to like kind of save the world again? It kind of gets kind of old. So I didn't really see the next story in it. And somebody who's a fan sent me a like an email and just said, "Here, look, this is an idea for the next story. Do you have fan fiction?" I'm like, "No, but I mean, I talked to him about it. I'm like, I really like this idea. Can I run with it?" He's like, "Yeah." And so what I learned from him, which was really interesting, is that especially with high fantasy, you don't always have to save the whole universe. Sometimes it can be just about the character development. And so you can have like a smaller individual life or death situation that can be just as compelling as the overarching save the world. 
So I'm kind of doing, I'm kind of fiddling with that, but I mean, Anita and I have been really working harder on the, um, the contemporary and then I'm allowed to give shout outs, right? Sure. Absolutely. So, uh, Megan Maslow is a really good friend of mine. She and I have, we live fairly close and back before we were forced to quarantine, we used to meet for lunch and she convinced me to work on her shared universe that she's planning. So it's like a paranormal romance. So that's going to be like an Andy Gallo book because it's going to be more romance and lighter on the fantasy, whereas Andrew Q. Gordon is fantasy that has some gay characters. So, so that's sort of like a bridge to the two. That's sort mm-hmm. of like the in-between, but the romance, but the fantasy element. So that's might, that might end up being my true love because I get to do both. We've talked about essentially three different stories here between Megan's universe and what you're working on with BA and book four in Harris and campus. Do you actually work on multiple books at one time or is it like I'm finishing this and then I'm going to do this and then I'm going to do that? The interesting thing is because Anita and I live in such different time zones and because Anita has her own deadlines and other things, I'll put stuff together and then I'll be like, okay, I need you to read this. And she's like, okay, but I have these other things first. And so, okay, I put it aside and then I can go work on something else. And BA is sort of doing the same thing. She has other works in place. And so we typically, I, I put like one day a week or one or two days a week to that story. And then I, the rest stays with this, uh, the other story. I have not really worked on Megan's universe. I haven't worked on that kit book that much. I have an outline. She and I have talked about it. But I'm not doing three at once. <laughs> I'm just not. I mean, that would make my not. head short circuit. <laughs> It's hard to remember which voice you're in when you do that. So that's why I'm not doing that. And eventually you'll come back perhaps to Andrew Q. Gordon as well and work on that story sometime. Whenever I'm kind of like contemporary out or I'm not really feeling the romance right now because, you know, as you know, it's hard right now. I've got my daughter is home 24-7. My husband has always worked at home, so he's not thrilled with having us here 24-7. Sort of interrupts his. So there are times when I'm just not feeling very romantic. And so the romance isn't there. So I'll sometimes just go pick that apart and and just pick that up for a little bit. And I mean, I've got maybe 2,000 words into that story. So it's mm-hmm. like, as you can see, I'm not doing a whole lot into it right now. I guess it's kind of cool that you can escape into whatever universe you want to in the moment <laughs> between the projects. Yeah, because sometimes I really do feel more like writing or just dealing with fantasy, which has, just, you know, I like to create something new. And when I say create something new, I'm like, I mean, that's mine, right? You, I don't know if you've ever written fantasy, but that's yours. I mean, Harrison Campus is yours, yeah, but it's sort of like built in this world, so you're still constricted to this, all the things that happen now. Whereas my fantasy world, you know, I'm, I'm God. Right. Yeah, I've never taken the leap on fantasy because having to do the whole world-building thing and build the universe, I, I, I just don't know that I could take that leap and do it. It was hard. I mean, where I got lucky where I was is that because I had started when my husband had talked me into picking up a hobby, I was literally almost two million words into that story before I started even pared down to publish it. So by the time I really went back and started rewriting book one, I already had a million and a half, almost two million words wow. in that universe. So I knew that world before I really started to write it, which was incredibly helpful. Mm-hmm. Because I didn't, because I had written myself into about seventeen different boxes in book one, <laughs> that had to, you know, er, that changed over the scope of the story. And so then when I went back, I already knew where the story was going. Right. And so I had, 
And so that was incredibly helpful having like, you know, I, okay, well, this didn't happen. Magic didn't work quite like that. I thought it did the first time. And if you do that, well, then why can't, why, how does that, if, if you can do this over here, why can't you do this over here and just solve the problem and to, and to fix those things? <laughs> That's a lot of words to deal with too. <laughs> having a couple million words to pare well, down. They weren't very good words all the time. <laughs> <laughs> With all this writing going on that you've had, what have you actually been reading over the summer that you might recommend to our listeners? So I've tried to catch up on a few of the stories that, you know, B.A. Tortuga wrote because I'm trying to write books for there. And, and I really liked Cowboy's Law, which was really just kind of like, I think that was sort of like her, I don't want to say coming out because she's been so known in the, in the world, but it was probably one of her best selling books. So I think it introduced her to a lot of expanded the reach of the people that she has been reading. I'm, I'm currently reading After Felix by Lily Morton, um, just because it struck me as a it was a good cover. I like the cover guy, uh, <laughs> but it's a great book. So some good stuff there. Lily Morton, very high on my uh, to read list because I love her work. It, it's always so fun. Yes, uh, that's good a great escapism. Word. Her characters are just. I think she would call them cheeky, but I mean, that's really, <laughs> I think I would too. Yes. <laughs> but that's the, that's the word for it. And I'm just like, wow, this is really, it's different from a lot of people I read. So that's what makes it great. Yeah, for sure. So we've, uh, again, we've talked about a lot of different work. What's coming out next? Like what looks like it's going to be the first thing out the door coming up? The only thing I know for sure is that I committed to putting something out in March with Megan Maslow's universe series. So I think that might be the next one, but we spent so much time, you know, for me, it was a process learning how to put books out mm -hmm. by myself. These are the first really true releases that I did on my own. And then we committed to do three within 65 days, which was like, oof. wow, we, we thought it would be better to do the whole series. Like we had it mostly written. So then we had to start figuring out the whole process and getting it ed edited and covers and lining up the voice actor for the audiobooks and all that stuff. And so then it started to hit and then we had to promo it. And then as soon as you finished that one, the next one came and you had to promo that. And then the next one came and you had to promo that. So I don't know that anything's going to come out for me for another eight, nine months. But then again, it might be like another wave because by mm -hmm. that point I've had all these things that I have been writing that should be much closer to release. Book one of Harrison Campus is on audiobook. What was it like having a book of yours flipped over to audio? Uh, and it's done by Nick Russo, who's one of my favorites out there in the MM world. What was it like hearing your words translated in that format? It was incredible because, you know, by the time we started the audiobook, I was so tired of the series. You know, I, I, <laughs> we'd written it, we edited it, we re-edited it, we proofread it. I mean, I don't know how other people do it, but I'm a horrible proofreader. And so what I have to do is I have to literally read each word out loud to see if I can catch things. And I did. And I, this was after other people proofed it and after edited and stuff. So by the time it got to Nick, I was so over it. And then, and then he did it and he started giving me these things. And I'm like, wow, I really like this again. And it kind of brought the joy back into the story. I mean, that's just the best way to say it. I was like really excited for it again after just listening to him. And he's so good with the way he does it and he's and, and, you know shout out to nick he's just amazing to work with he's so easy to work with and he's just i mean he made it easy for me because it was our first time 
because mm-hmm. they don't do ACX in Germany. So Anita really can't get her books out on her own. She has to work through a service. And so it was our first time doing it. So Nick was just wonderful with it. Do we get the other books in the series over time? Oh, it depends on ACX. They're really horrible with this. But yes, they're all – we. When I contacted Nick, I contracted all three books for him. Two is already with ACX waiting for their quality review. Okay. It took almost three months for them to get the first book out. And we were anticipating like 30 days. Yeah. So he is actually recording book three right now. It better be true. And that should be – he should have that done towards the end of August, beginning of September. So what's the best way for folks to keep up with you online, keep up with when the next audiobooks come out and all these releases you've got coming out over the next year or so? So for Anita, her group is called uh, Slow Burn Sunday, and, and that's usually the best way. She's pretty active in it. You can get all her links there. AnitaSunday.com is her website. She has a newsletter. She's giving out like a whole bunch of free books in there. So if you haven't signed up, go to her website and link up with her and her newsletter or join her group. And for me, Andy Gallo is my, my website, andygallo.com. I'm in the process of getting the whole, you know, I, I haven't really, this whole process of being a real author is hard sometimes. <laughs> so I'm, I'm getting, I mean, website's being redesigned right now. And once they finish that, I will have a newsletter at that point. But I have a reader group. It's called Glorious Readers, which is sort of a play on Andy Gallo or just my email, andy at andygallo.com. Excellent. We will link to all of that in the show notes so people can find the books and the websites and the reader groups and everything else. Andy, thank you so much for spending some time and telling us about Harrison Campus and everything else you're working on. Thanks, Jeff. I really appreciate it. This week's interview transcript has been brought to you by our community on Patreon. If you'd like to read the author interview for yourself, simply head over to the show notes page for this episode at BigGayFictionPodcast.com. And thanks again to Andy for telling us all about the Harrison Campus series. I also very much enjoyed hearing about the collaborations he's working on with B.A. Tortuga and with Megan Maslow. So looking forward to those books as well. All right. I think that'll do it for this week's show. Now, coming up next in episode 257, we've got another listener favorite episode. Not too long ago, we asked you what your favorite interviews have been over the last five years. And next week, it's going to be a guest picked especially by you, our beloved listeners. It's fun to go back into these episodes and listen to what some of the fans are calling out as favorites. So as you might can tell, we're not telling you who this is. You'll just have to come back next week and find out. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode and have discovered a few new books to add to your TBR pile. And if not, don't worry. We'll be back again next week with more recommendations and author interviews. So until then, stay strong, be safe, and above all else, keep turning those pages and keep reading. Big Gay Fiction Podcast is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. You can find more shows you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. New episodes of this show are available every Monday wherever you get your podcasts. You can help support this show with a monthly pledge through Patreon. For more information about joining our community and the bonus content we deliver, check out patreon.com slash biggayfictionpodcast. I'm Kurt Graves. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.